Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to yet another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. As always, I'm your host and narrator, spring Jack, and today we're going to be picking back up with the Mark Twitchell story. As you know, he's one of my least favorite people of all time, and I look forward to slandering his reputation some more. Can't wait. But before we get started, I'm going to take this time to give you a brief disclaimer. This show can be considered offensive if you have no balls, no spine, or, uh, you know, whatever else you would consider making one tough. If you don't have any of those things, turn the show off now, because chances are it might offend you at some point, and I don't want to hear it, so suck it. Second, I use advertisements in this show that are not my creative property. I do not stand to gain by using them. I use them because they're funny. Rockstar Games owns the rights. I have nothing to do with them. Thank you. And we're going to get straight to it after a message from these fake ads that don't sponsor the show. Enjoy. We all care about the environment, some more than others, especially those of us on the West Coast. But places thousands of miles away have water that is our birthright. We're San Andreas Water and Power. Without our tireless efforts to keep the water and subsidies flowing, San Andreas could dry up like a woman in her 50s. No green lawns, no swimming pools, no lush golf courses in the desert. Sure, you may have to pay the piper sometime, but let's all work together to make sure it's not just yet. San Andreas Water and Power. The video game of the year. Roger that, Bravo Sierra. We've got some insurgents killing orphans, and they've got some nerve toxin and a nuke and a random flashback level on which JFK and Castro do get out on the moon. Righteous Slaughter 7. Copy that, Red Leader. Call in the airstrike. Righteous Slaughter 7. The realistic art of contemporary killing. How do you kill? Rated PG. Pretty much the same as the last game. All right. So planning and plotting, Twitchell's mind raced as he sped through the city. He had to stay organized as he checked off his list. He needed a practical effects artist to pull off his idea for a short film and had no clue where to look because he wasn't actually in the industry. But at least he had secured a location for the film's shoot. The property was renting for $175 a month. It wasn't much, but when he saw it, he knew that it was all that he needed. He was uh, what most people would call simple. At least I would. A double-door garage surrounded by high fence, high fences and detached from the main house. He liked how quiet it was, despite being in the middle of a suburb. The current renters of the house were from Mexico and spoke very little English, which suited him fine. Twitchell knew that they would leave him the fuck alone. He signed the lease that morning. Now, sitting in front of his computer, pretending to be at work for another day, he read over an email he had written. He clicked through his address book, adding the names of his film crew, Mike, J. Scott, Joss, David, and a possible backup for a camera guy. A woman who did makeup was included, and he hit send. What's up, bitches? It started. I have a month to kill, so I decided we should produce a short thriller. This one is about a serial killer who gets his kicks from taking out people who he thinks they're getting away with something. The shoot dates are Friday, the t- uh, Friday September 26th, Saturday the 27th. The actual main portion of the short will be shot in a garage that I have rented at 5712 40th Avenue, which is power but no heat, so if the weather is being nice, great. If it's a bitch, we'll bring heaters. Look forward to having some fun. Mark Twitchell, Express Entertainment. He was searching for an actor who could deliver the killer's cold and intimidating tone without being 
too corny or overdoing it. The film's victim, Roger, was meant to be a hard-working man who, who considers himself quite smooth at hiding things from his wife, but loses all bravado when he's tied to a chair in a dark room. His email to the crew included a description of his desired special effects. I need one severed ear, and there's one shot I'd like to get of the victim's decapitation. The more realistic, the better. It's a darkly lit scene, so minor detail is not as important as the overall weight and trajectory of the head falling from the body and the believability of the blood spurting afterwards. The shot I have in mind is practically a silhouette of the victim. He told his crew not to worry about props. He'd already brought, or he'd already bought a few the previous day. Some contained in a green plastic briefcase. Uh, Twitchell wanted a stun gun for the shoot, but discovered that they were only legal for purchase in America. God damn, that's right. His crew proved eager to help. Mike, Jay, and Scott all replied within four hours. Having formed a business partnership after the Star Wars fan film, the trio thought it would be a good chance to show off their new company, Apocalypse Art, and their set-building abilities. But Twitchell didn't need their input. He already knew exactly what he wanted. He asked for a large rectangular table, longer than a grown man, and turned to Scott to build it. It needs to be sturdy, strong as fuck. He wrote the trio in another email. This is not to be built for temporary use. This has to be precision quality. Twitchell wanted a thick wood top and six big-ass table legs, all cross-braced. The table must be surfaced and edged in stainless steel. Next, he demanded a custom-made chair. Not just any chair, though. It has to be metal. Twitchell had drawn sketches of what he wanted and sent, them, uh, and sent some of them to the crew via email. Mike would help in this building effort. One of Twitchell's drawings showed the killer's chair and the victim's chair. Uh, and it looked like it had been bolted to the concrete floor. I'll gladly pay for all the materials used for this as long as you shop wisely, Twitchell wrote, finishing his email on a joke. And then the hookers and beer on top of that. The film crew did as they were told. Mike and Jay would help build the set pieces, but couldn't be there for the filming. Scott, however, would be there for both. Mike picked up set keys and drove off to the newly rented garage to begin working. One of the first things he did was pick up a padlock. Twitchell had insisted that one be attached to the back door as soon as possible. On Friday, August 29th, Twitchell had taken until mid-afternoon to reach the United States border, a seven-hour drive straight south that ended at the mouth of a security checkpoint. Sitting in his car, Twitchell had been caught in a lie and refused entry. He wasn't sure why he did that. Sometimes he just lied for no reason. He had planned to drive to Montana to buy props and supplies for his new movie project, but he had told Jess that he had scored work on a music video shoot over Labor Day's weekend. But to keep the ruse going, he had told the customs officer the same story. The officer then asked Twitchell if he had the required United States work visa for such a project, which of course he did not. So his mission failed because he was a retard. Twitchell pointed his Grand Am back north and hit the gas. By the time he reached Calgary a few hours later, he was tired and just pulled into a hotel. He needed a break from his life for a few days. In his hotel room, just after 9 p.m., Twitchell flipped over his computer and surfed the web for solutions to his movie problem. After a few clicks, he found an option. A seller was offering to ship one of the desired props to Canada. He thought it would be perfect for a horror movie. Listed as telescopic stun gun baton, the weapon could collapse into a black handle and even came with its own holster. Just the sound of the unit should stop most people, the seller boasted on his online advertisement. 
It's loud, it sparks, and it's very intimidating. And if that doesn't stop them, 800,000 volts will. Yeah, sure, 800,000, my ass. Twitchell pulled out his credit card, and minutes later, he was back on Facebook and asking for help. Mark needs a headless mannequin to complete the effect. Anybody know where I can borrow slash rent one? His secret weekend in Calgary included many an online purchase, a meat cleaver, a pair of handcuffs, uh, software to prevent tracking of his internet activity through his web address. But alone in the hotel room, he found his mind drifting from movie plots to personal plights. He was thinking of his failing marriage. He was thinking of other women. His thoughts returned to his first love, uh, Tracy, who was never that far from his heart. Twitchell flipped through another type of listing, one more discreet than those for knives and stun guns. It was something exotic. An unrushed service that attended his needs. The city escort, or courtesan. Uh, what a douche. Investor John Pinsett, a chartered accountant by trade, thumbed the dozen pages in a business proposal Twitchell had sent over to his office. The sales pitch had changed considerably over the past six months. There was a Hollywood veteran attached to the project who was identified as a co-producer behind the blockbusters like uh, Old School and Ocean's Eleven. Twitchell had lined up big stars like a cult movie director Kevin Smith, Justin Timberlake, the musician, Jeff Goldblum, the actor, and Alec Baldwin, the actor. We have been in contact with the representation of each of these performers, and the feedback has been the same in each case. They like our script, they love our offer, and they appreciate the logistics, and none of them can foresee anything getting in the way of getting them signed on to play supporting roles or themselves. Twitchell had stated that he'd gathered $500,000 in escrow and signed a $1 million production services contract with a company called Mandroid Inc. The remaining financing terms were now all cleared up. The filmmaker was asking John for a temporary loan. If Twitchell could get investors like him to buy 10 units at $35,000 each, he could unlock a line of credit with a gap financer to cover the rest of the movie's budget. Once that happened, each investor would get their money back, plus a slice of the profit. Estimated... $170,000 for each unit purchased. The initial investment would be held in trust for a few months. With the production value, level of talent, and low cost of the budget that we have, the movie would have to bomb beyond all comprehension to present any real risk. Leaning into his desk and staring at his computer screen, Twitchell talked into his phone in his home basement office. He had been back from his solo trip to Calgary for a few weeks and was once again busy searching the internet. Jess came in from the backyard and headed for the stairs. As she turned the corner in the basement, she spotted her husband at the computer. He didn't see her as, she blab as he blabbed into his phone. She glanced at the screen around the back of his head, seeing what he was looking at, and suddenly felt sick. Get off the fucking phone, she exploded. Twitchell jolted back in his chair and whipped around to meet her gaze. What are you doing, she screamed. The computer monitor displayed a page from AshleyMadison.com, a dating site tailored specifically for cheating on your spouse. He flicked his phone off and gave her a quick answer. I'm doing research for a freelance article about internet dating. He sounded calm. I got the job by convincing the editor that I would sign up on some of the sites, undercover, and get first-hand material. Jess scowled. What publication? It's an online company. I don't believe you. I can prove it. My editor's going to be calling to discuss the article in my payment. Jess stared at him. You can listen in on the conference call if you'd like, he added. Raising a doubting eyebrow, Jess put her hand on her hip. What's his name? Phil Porter. Two days later, sitting in the upstairs living room, Twitchell talked on the phone as Jess listened. Her husband was discussing an article with a man whose voice she didn't recognize. A man who identified himself as Phil Porter from an online magazine. 
Twitchell hung up after a few minutes. It still doesn't make any sense to me, Jess said, shaking her hand. I don't believe it. Twitchell didn't know what else to do. He shrugged. The only thing I can think of is that when the money comes in, you'll know it's because they use the article. It wasn't enough for Jess. She was terribly confused. He had never written any piece of journalism before, and thinking back to the distance growing between them, she feared her husband was having an affair. He eventually handed over his passwords to his email account to ease her suspicions, but they both knew where their relationship was headed. With trust between them deteriorating, they would likely need marriage counseling. Jess was wondering if her husband needed his own personal therapist as well. Sulking around the house, Twitchell told Jess about his little horror movie that he was making, and she was immediately worried about the cost. But he assured her it would be of no concern. In fact, a draft of the script was complete, and he explained how it had been an outlet for him during his recent problems. He had been inspired by their marital difficulties and mixed it into his own interest of psychological thrillers. It was only a few pages long, but he had come up with a title, House of Cards. His proposed ending for the short film, however, had just horrified. The thought of a man being decapitated was revolting to her. She demanded he change it, Twitchell resisted, having planned that specific ending for weeks. But Jess persisted, and in a huff, Twitchell eventually assured her that he would think of something else, maybe. Break time. We're Fleesa. We began as a credit card company, and thanks to customer allegiance and 29% interest fees that retain clients for life, we became a bank. But we're more than that. We're a brokerage firm, too. What's better than a bank investing your assets for our profits in the safety and security of the stock market? Hey, America's been through some tough times. We've all had to make some sacrifices in health and dignity to make ends meet. At Fleesa, we've sacrificed our integrity and spent a fortune lobbying so that regulations don't bog down the future. Fleesa, credit cards, banking, brokerage. It's time to start paying for everything. The pharmaceutical industry is at it again. They don't want you to vote yes on Proposition 208 and legalize medical cocaine. For millions of Americans, it's the medicine that helps them get through the day. A God-given plant strained through gasoline in the jungle by a man with missing teeth. Vote yes on Proposition 208 and legalize medical cocaine. Placed on multiple websites, Twitchell's casting calls for House of Cards had achieved uh, much success. One actor, a local comedian, would be playing the victim. Another was flying in from Toronto to be the killer. And a young woman agreed to portray the wife in the script. While they would be working for free, Twitchell was, comp- was promising them potential roles in day players along so- stars like Alec Baldwin for their efforts. All were excited by the coming possibilities. Twitchell's search for movie props had been successful too. A military surplus store had a variety of knives for which Twitchell had personally selected a sturdy K-bar blade as his killer's weapon of choice. He also bought a large oil drum to help dress the set hoping to give the garage the gritty look of a serial killer's lair. Ugh. Josh had urged Twitchell not to buy it since the drum would cost more than $150 after shipping, but Twitchell was adamant that he should own such an item. One of his most striking props brought back memories of uh, Twitchell's childhood video efforts. In an online sporting goods store, he'd found a hard plastic hockey mask. It looked... It looked like the thing from the Friday the 13th slasher movie franchise, the mask that Jason wore. Or like something a goalie from the original six NHL team, the Detroit Red Wings, would have worn. All he had to do was cut out the jaw and maybe dress it up a bit with the golden black paint. 
Far darker concepts were also brewing as he prepared for the film shoot, but like many aspects of Twitchell's life, he was hiding them in plain sight. For nobody, save his suspicious spouse, was looking very closely at what was really going on. On Facebook, he revealed he revealed his biggest clues, often wrapping them within his love of a double entendre. He had already become Dexter Morgan on Facebook. He'd opened an account under the fictional character's name and included more than a dozen photos of the actor who played the role. He was gathering friends who were pretending that Dexter was real. Twitchell would then communicate with his followers, responding as Dexter, and he would even... Uh, he, God... Uh, he would respond as Dexter with every reply. Dexter's thinking deep these days, he wrote as a status update. You fucking loser. Twitchell continued to update his own account. At the time, some users of the social networking site were making references to themselves in the third person because that's how the status updates used to work. Oh, God, it was annoying. Anthony's taking a dump. Or Tom is walking the dog. Or whatever. It was fucking lame, but everyone did it. Uh, some of the users of the social networking site were making references to themselves in the third person. Uh, Twitchell did as well. Everyone did. It wasn't just him. As much as I'd like to make fun of him for it, everybody did. It was just like a narrative technique that was used in Fight Club, one of his favorite movies. Mark feeds on the souls of his reality. His excitement becomes quite evident. Mark is gearing up for a crazy weekend of film and action. Ugh. Fucking loser. Although House of Cards was only a short film, Twitchell had been spending a great deal of time researching the psychology behind his killer character. Anything that could be used to describe the motives and personality of such a troubled man. He read books on psychological disorders and the kinds of diagnosed conditions that define a rare breed of uncaring real-life criminal who can kill with no emotion, as required to slice bread. It was like a fundamental part of what it means to be a human was missing from these people, a quality that made others uneasy. What Twitchell was surprised to discover during his research was that he'd actually shared some of these undesirable personality traits with some of the monsters. An emotional detachment, a tendency to lie, at times he was selfish. He sat down at his computer, struggling with the horrible self-discovery he had just made, and began typing a long passage that began with an admission that his, that his continued... That's not written very well. That his continued lying to his wife and was spiraling out of control. I feel no remorse for this whatsoever, maybe because I feel like I'm entitled. I often find myself justifying my actions based on overreaching loose philosophy like life is too short or what she doesn't know won't hurt her. I've set up an intricate, elaborate web of bullshit around my entire relationship, and I would rather claim to protect her from the stress. But all I seem to be doing is protecting her from truly knowing who I am. He expanded on this point later. I feel like I have to fake it the whole time. If my family and friends ever knew the real me, it would damage many of them, some irreparably. I think I would rather continue faking it for their own benefit and then watch rather than watch several people's worlds, including my own, unravel entirely. I know they'll survive, but some sometimes happiness is more than mere survival. Twitchell was worried his exploration into the depths of his own killer instinct had uncovered a startling and unexpected portrait of himself. Twitchell picked up the phone and called a therapist. He also visited an on-staff psychiatrist at his nearby hospital. But both mental health experts, he later claimed, insisted that he was fine. After all, the beasts he was using as comparison never sought treatment because they insisted nothing was wrong with them. 
It was everyone else that had a problem. Oh, oof, I've said that. The fact that he visited a therapist was all the proof he needed to believe that he was fine. After a much wider sense of probing questions that weren't closed-ended or leading, we discovered, I have no deficiency in these areas, he later wrote, brushing off the incident. His fear of what could lie beneath found a way to subside. Twitchell returned to designing what would later make his killer tick. He was a fan of Batman's Joker, especially actor Heath Ledger's portrayal of the warped sadistic prankster. Twitchell wrote that he loved the same concepts the Joker had exploited in the movie The Dark Knight. The Joker was about theatrics. He wants to shake up the status quo, put the wildly invigorating thrill of uncertainty and imbalance into the public's mind. He sees masses of drones living their worker bee lives and losing large sections of themselves to monotony. How do we solve this problem? Adventure, mayhem, chaos, that's how. And of course, his boyfriend Dexter Morgan had always been at the top of his mind. Anyone who takes out the trash in such a way as the depiction of Dexter or or the killer in his film is fine by me, vigilante or not. Vigilante. The thought that there could be random citizens eliminating the dredge of society by hacking up pedophiles, rapists, killers of the innocent, and other vermin is a warm, comforting thought. And we should be so lucky to have anybody like that in the real world, let alone working for the police with their resources and education. It's kind of like the boondock saints, just not as cool. The concept of fate was of interest, too. Twitchell had been struck by a passage in a book by fantasy writer David Gemmel, in which an assassin views himself as simply the hand of fate at work. As Twitchell would write days after the film shoot, not only does fate exist, but I am but I am very important to this fate machine, and it has gone out of its way to teach me a valuable lesson so that I may continue carrying out the inevitable. After all his research, a composite of his killer's character, blended from his various passions, was finally complete. Twitchell had actually been honest with his wife when he confessed that House of Cards took inspiration from his personal life. In fact, the film focused on the concept of self-hatred, an admission he would later make to a total stranger drawn to his Dexter Morgan profile on Facebook. And as years, and as the years passed by, Twitchell would continue to reveal how far more sinister themes had also played a role in the plot of his short film. After all, at the very heart of this project, a film he was scheduled to begin shooting in a few short days was a story of deception which he was no stranger to. Twitchell stayed quiet on this front, though, especially during filming when he appeared subdued, even slightly detached from his own film crew. But the brutal violence of a serial killer came almost second, secondary to the film's premise of a man living his life as a performance, perfecting day-to-day -day motions to mask his real identity and to fool the world, just like him, just like Dexter Morgan. Break time again. The Life Invader Tablet. It's time to dock. The future is now. Life Invader, the social networking site, announces its now. new tablet. It's not technology. It's your life. Technology. Live it the way you want. With a device that tells you what to do. It's time to dock. The Life Invader Tablet. We've skipped a generation, so you don't have to. Live tomorrow. You will be connected to humanity. You will be docked. Invasion never felt so good. The Life Invader tablet wake up in the morning drop a big old log out here you ain't got time for nothing fruity like a jog marry a fat bitch and die working like a dog cowboys in the heartland bankers in the city we love cars guns and big old plastic titties let's grab a case of 
party in real butch. You ought to speak English if you like it here so much. Not Spanish or Chinese or British. They're all fucking Dutch. Fuck the Dutch. I said, yeah, we're gonna keep them illegals out. Guns and piss washer. German fight logger for export only. Chris Heward sat hunched over in the darkened garage, strapped to a metal chair in the middle of a musty wood building. His wrists were duct taped to the back of the chair, his ankles strapped to his legs, and his stomach spilling out over the sides of its narrow frame. It had been welded together out of an angle iron. He was the victim, trapped in the victim's chair. Before him stood Mark Twitchell in a dark hoodie and jeans, a studio light glowing behind his head, throwing a soft hue onto the grease-stained walls. Joss was nearby, checking the sound equipment. Dave huddled over a rented digital camera mounted on a tripod. Scott was towering over everybody, fiddling with the lights. The crew had already unspooled a roll of duct tape across Chris's chest. It tugged tight on his navy blue dress shirt that he was wearing, squeezing his arms into his side. Twitchell took a step back and looked down at the captive Chris, completely restrained from shoulders to his feet. Twitchell's lips pouted a bit as he tried to make a brief smile of pride. Okay, David announced, adjusting the camera a little bit, we're ready for the killer shit. It was several hours into the second day of filming House of Cards, and aspiring actor Chris was not enjoying the experience. The acting job seemed exciting at first, but after being strapped down for hours, he was feeling a cold drip of uneasiness. Chris began to wiggle his wrists and ankles, trying to loosen the tape. Chris had met Twitchell only once previously over coffee, and he was starting to realize just how little he knew of the director's filmmaking background. Their meeting had ended with a job offer and no formal addition, just a joke or two from Chris's repertoire of amateur stand-up. And while acting was a newer endeavor for Chris, Twitchell's enthusiasm and promise of future work with Hollywood stars had him hoping the low-budget mystery thriller could be a big break for him. But when Chris showed up at the film set on the morning of Saturday, September 27th, he found it wasn't a professional studio, but in fact a rundown garage. Its cream-colored doors had been pulled down tight onto the, once the filming began. Hardly any light could escape. The air hung heavy with sawdust, and it was freezing fucking cold. Everybody had their sleeves pulled down, and Chris was regretting not telling his agent about what he was doing. It had been a tense morning for the crew. They had taken a bit longer than expected to get organized, and they continued to stumble over one another. Many of the finer details of the film shoot, from set pieces and props to the script, had been planned weeks in advance, but some of the very basics of filmmaking seemed to have been forgotten. Almost treated like an afterthought. Mike and Jay had helped Scott clean out the garage and build the set pieces, including perfecting Twitchell's desired table and chair. But the camera Twitchell had rented didn't come with a power adapter, forcing the crew to go hunting for one when the internal battery died. Joss had to drive to St. Albert at the last minute to pick up a pair of samurai swords that Twitchell had forgotten at home. Disagreements broke out among the crew. At one point, Twitchell became upset because the crew was using too much of his duct tape. He wanted the tape rationed for some fucking reason. He had also 
snatched one of the samurai swords out of the hands of his actor as they touched the sharpened blades between shots. Don't put your fingerprints on these, he snarled. He explained how it was a higher quality blade of folded steel. The oil in your hands could wreck the blade. You stupid fuck. They were designed to cut people in half. Think the fucking finger oil is going to ruin it? Fuck you, fucking nerd fucker. With the final prep work for the next scene complete, Chris fidgeted in the metal chair trying to get comfortable. He had read the script a few times and was worried about how the next scene would play out. Chris was playing the part of a cheating husband who used online dating websites to arrange liaisons with other women. Only this time, when he thinks he's meeting some sexy bitch, he is confronted by a masked man. He's about seven steps from the door when the unmistakable sound of a stun gun being fired explodes from the darkness. The script read, Before he has time to comprehend what's going on, he gets clubbed in the back of the head and knocked unconscious. Now, Chris's character, strapped to the cold metal chair, was awaiting an interrogation by the masked stranger. The killer was being played by Robert Barnsley, another inexperienced actor who was so excited by the chance of landing a role in one of Twitchell's, in Twitchell's next big movie that he paid for his own flight from Toronto. What a fucking goofball. Robert was skinny, only about 20 years old, and looked young for his age. Some of the crew had wondered how he was going to pull off the performance of a threatening and crazed man. At least his youthful appearance would be hidden behind that modified hockey mask that Twitchell had made. Robert slipped on the killer's black mask, tightening the white straps behind his head as his nose pressed against the plastic, cupping his forehead. The lower section of the mask had been cut away, leaving his mouth and chin exposed. What, like the Hollywood undead? Twitchell had outfitted him with a hoodie, which covered his hair and ears, making him look sinister while hiding his appearance. Moments before they were to begin shooting the interrogation scene, a strip of duct tape was suddenly slapped across Chris's mouth. Twitchell disappeared behind the camera. Joss, the sound man, held up a microphone. David pressed the camera's record button and rolling. It was Twitchell's call, the sound of the camera humming, the buzz of the lights, a pause. Twitchell had given both of his actors very little direction throughout the shoot beyond minor instructions. Robert took a breath as he readied himself. Chris could only wait helplessly like a stuck pig, lips sealed tight with a fresh piece of tape. Twitchell spoke. Action. Boo. Robert hooted with a fiendish delight that was reminiscent of Bat Batman's Joker. His opening line rolling into a sadistic cackle. The noise startled his captive awake as Robert emerged from the darkness as the film's killer, standing tall under the harsh glow of the light. Welcome to a game of live or die, the killer declared, greeting his victim as he paced in front of him. The process is really quite simple, so pay very close attention because I don't enjoy repeating myself, and if you make me do that, he pulled out a knife. Chris snapped himself into character, staring at the killer, a dark shadow falling off the nose of the mask. Remembering his cue, Chris began to whimper. He tried to scream, but the duct tape muffled the sound. He started to sweat. Chris knew it was a real knife taken off the metal table, and the killer drew very close to him, and the knife's sharp edge was inching closer to his nose. Chris felt a lump in his throat. He didn't have to feign fear. All right, settle down. The killer spat like he was disciplining a child, pulling back and twisting the knife into the light. You have to take stock of your situation. You don't know where you are, and I'm hiding my identity from you. He spun on his heel, scraping a bit of dirt on the concrete floor. Now, why would I bother if I was just going to kill you? He glared and started pacing again. Chris stared back, noisily, sucking air through his nose. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you're going to answer me truthfully, the killer continued. I'm going to check your answers while you're sitting here. He looked over 
to the laptop at the table, and if I find that you've lied to me on any particular point, he stopped his pacing and swung the mask face closer to Chris. I'm going to cut something off. Chris tossed his weight from side to side and whimpered. Now, I don't mess around and I don't give second chances, so if anything comes out of your pie hole that isn't polite, direct answer to a question, you'll go home in pieces. Or missing pieces. It's up to you. And that will be really hard to explain to your wife. The killer taped... Or, the killer tapped the blade on his palm. Do you read me? Chris nodded frantically. The metal chair groaned and squeaked. Perfect. Let's start with the easy one. What's your cheating heart's password? He mumbled something. Sorry, I didn't catch that. The killer squinted at the duct tape on the victim's lip. Ah. He pinched his fingers and gripped the edge of one side, leaning in close to Chris's ear. I realize this goes without saying, but I don't want any misunderstandings. If you scream, I will cut your windpipe out, which will cause an awfully huge mess and unfortunately leave you unable to answer any more questions, so I'd recommend you shut up. The killer ripped the tape and threw it on the ground. Chris grunted in real pain. His lips were stinging and he wanted to rub them, but his arms were taped to the chair. Twitchell stopped the scene. David and Scott relaxed and Joss brought down the microphone. The crew would need several more takes as they tried to make the tape less sticky. Sympathetic to the pain, Chris was suffering every time it was ripped off his face. During a break, Joss asked about the dating site in the film plot. Are there even sites where married people can go to hook up with other married people? Yeah, I heard of one, Chris told the group. I saw it in the paper the other day. It's called Ashley Madison. Twitchell appeared to pick up the conversation, but didn't say a word. As the Saturday film shoot stretched into the early evening, the crew crew moved onto one of the last scenes at the garage. After the killer tortures his victim into revealing his bank PIN numbers, email, and dating site passwords, he deleted his fake female account, and all the communication between his profile and his victim. Then drives to the bank to withdraw his victim's money. Now in the scene, the killer returns, announcing that he has changed his mind about letting the victim survive and will instead use the extorted personal information to fool his victim's friends and family into believing he's still alive. The perfect cover. At Jess's request, Twitchell had altered the film's ending to remove a gruesome decapitation and a power-saw dismemberment scene, but she probably wouldn't have liked his new idea any better. The victim would be brutally stabbed and his body chopped into pieces with a meat cleaver. It was a departure from Dexter's preferred tools, but there were still references to the series littered throughout. The killer remained an employee of a police force in the script, and Twitchell made a power-saw to the people's sticker promoting the TV show and appeared and it appeared in the background of one scene. The victim's wife also reads a Dexter novel in an earlier shot. Throughout the weekend, Twitchell kept saying things like, just like Dexter, smiling and laughing boisterously. His new ending required the killer to plunge the samurai sword into his captive's chest. Chris was relieved the crew could film the shot with him freed from the chair. As he stretched his legs and rubbed his wrists, the crew finished debating how to film the murder scene on such a low budget. Scott fashioned a fake torso by pulling apart an old couch the crew had tossed into the alley driveway. He ripped at the foam and placed the stuffing in an extra dress shirt Chris had brought with him. Using duct tape to help form the belly and the general shape of the actor's body, he dropped the newly constructed torso onto the chair. Twitchell returned from the grocery store with a bottle of corn syrup, red food coloring, and a juice jug. It was the film industry's recipe for fake blood. Scott poured the syrup into the jug, added a bit of water and red dye, and then mixed it with an attached juice plunger? the hell is that? Within seconds, he had created a glorious red liquid that looked just like the real thing. He dumped the fake blood into a Ziploc bag and made a few incisions in the foam chest cavity and inserted the bag inside. 
At last, they were ready to film the final act of mayhem as the container was placed under the chair to stop the sticky substance from pooling on the floor. Twitchell circled the chair, smiling in satisfaction at the foam torso before he took a spot behind the camera. Robert pulled one of the samurai blades out of its sheath and wrapped his hands around the handle. He pointed the long blade at the chair. Camera's rolling, David announced. Action, said Twitchell. The killer leapt forward and plunged the sword deep into the victim's torso. Grinding his teeth, he twisted the blade into the guts, taking great pleasure in killing his victim. But Robert missed the blood bag and the sword he was using. The cheaper stainless steel version wasn't sharp enough to rip the shirt. (laughs) On the second try, the sword sliced through the fabric, but it also pushed out the foam, making it obvious the victim was made of stuffing. The crew gave up on the idea of a fake torso and decided to just hold the shirt in place. Scott and Joss stood on either side of the chair, dangling the blood bag just behind the fabric. Thrust, everybody shouted, encouraging Robert to ram the sword through as hard as he could. The blade cut deep and the blood bag burst opened. A pool of liquid blood spilled out from the back of the shirt in a thickened stream. The liquid moved down the length of the sword, reaching the tip and then falling off in drips of red. The crew waited and watched in excitement, letting the fake blood flow for several minutes as the camera kept rolling, making sure they'd captured the perfect shot. Chris was smiling, eyes bright. He thought the death scene looked pretty good. David and Scott were pleased with the special effects too, but Twitchell had gone silent, as if deep in thought. Crew members noticed his lack of reaction and wondered if he didn't care. After their day of hard work, it looked like Twitchell was unmoved or disappointed by the effort. But if he was, he wasn't saying. The crew had been filming for two days straight, almost, for what was supposed to be a short eight-minute film, but they still had another day to go. That night, they were scheduled to shoot a final scene at the garage, an external shot showing the killer dumping large garbage bags full of body parts into the trunk of his car, but David was exhausted and looking for excuses to leave. He turned to Twitchell. We're not shooting that scene. Too anticlimactic. Twitchell listened to his complaints patiently. We'll do a really intense close-up of the guy being impaled, David continued, trying to get Twitchell excited, and he's screaming from under the tape, and the music's going to build up, and bam, it's going to hard cut to the computer typing screen. Okay, said Twitchell, nodding, that works. He remembered the scene well. It had been filmed the night before with him playing the starring role. Uh, For Twitchell, that write-what-you-know mantra reveal the writer being the real killer was just a uh, major twist that somebody like renowned film director Alfred Hitchcock would have used in one of his suspense thrillers. And as Twitchell explained years later, the last shot of House of Cards also perfectly explained the theme and an important lesson behind his work, demonstrating how easily real motives can be hidden from view. Anyone can turn out to be a psycho, he wrote, without being overtly obvious about it. The next evening, Twitchell was cruising towards the freeway, slowing down at a yellow light as he pondered the three-day film shoot. He had just left an East End steakhouse where some of the crew had joined him for a House of Cards wrap-up party to celebrate the end of shooting. Over dinner, com- over dinner, conversation had drifted into talk of follow-up projects, giving Twitchell a handful of ideas of where his little film project would be taken next. Of course, he had also pitched Chris on investing in day players, and while a $35,000 investment would be nearly all of his money, Chris was giving the proposal some serious thought. Twitchell just had to give him some time. Twitchell stopped for the red light and considered how much more he was capable of doing. While House of Cards was an accomplishment, he knew something was missing. He thought back to the film set, his ideas, his script, his characters pulling a narrative forward, and he tapped the steering wheel deep in thought. Above the glowing streetlights, a thin blue line of stars appeared through a rift in the clouds as the evening chill plunged the city close to the freezing point. He flicked on the car heater and waited as it coughed out warm dust at his feet. 
The light flashed to green by the time he had parked and reached the front door. He was on a new plan. That evening, the third season of Dexter premiered on television. The episode depicted the first time Dexter slaying an innocent man in an act of self-defense. He covers it up. But the incident had him pondering his long-held code to only kill bad people. From now on, Dexter would wonder if the code had been too rigid and whether his targets for murder could be broadened to include more categories. Nearing midnight, Twitchell sat at the computer in his basement, unable to sleep. His mind was a mess of jumbled thoughts. Jess and Chloe had had gone to bed long ago. That's his wife and daughter. Twitchell logged on to his Dexter Morgan account on Facebook and discovered he had a new message from one of his followers, some bitch named Renee Warrig. Uh, Warring had kidnapped him? It was a silly game that people could play on the site, forcing a response out of the targeted profile. I don't remember that. He checked her account. She was a total stranger and lived in Ohio. She had long, dark hair and sparkling green eyes. Twitchell was intrigued and sent her a Facebook message while still pretending to be Dexter. I had to ignore your request, he wrote, because my only options were escape and ignore, and if I actually were kidnapped by you, there's no way I'd want to escape. Oh, you're fucking smooth, Holmes. He logged out after a subtle online flirt, but found he still couldn't sleep. His mind was lurching. And then an idea struck him with a powerful force, and he was staggered by the very thought of it. It had happened a few times before, but nothing like this. His internal creative genius, self, self-named, self was rising within, giving him the confidence he needed to think through his plan. Twitchell viewed it as a savant power, a subconscious and random boost that helped drive his action. It's not something that you can manually control or manipulate, he explained later. It's like if you had a faucet and the dials didn't work. And it just ran water when it felt like it, but you got to get in there with a pitcher wherever it runs to get a hold of it. What? If there was a faucet, the water was now flowing uncontrollably. Yeah, maybe sewage. His mind could barely keep up. His heart was racing. He had an epiphany. At last, he was given the insight he had been searching for for so long. This night would change everything. Thinking about the film shoot and the conversation over dinner, everything he had been working towards over the past year, Twitchell had finally achieved some clarity of mind. He had a purpose, a new destiny, if you will. His next steps would impact the lives of countless others, but he wasn't thinking of them. Perhaps he never would. Twitchell stared at the ceiling, realizing that his boring suburban life was about to be blown apart. What he now saw in front of him was terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. It could be full of risk, but it would set him apart from everyone else forever. It would be his legacy, his claim to fame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What a fucking loser. Ugh, fucking hate this guy. I'm going to take another brief break, squad. It's time to take your weight problem seriously. It's time to stop pussyfooting around with so-called lifestyle changes. It's time for surgery today. Don't wait a minute. Don't try other methods. Try the gastro band. Don't for one second think you can do it on your own. We both know you can't. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gotten into this mess. Get real about your weight problems and your complete lack of willpower. Give in. Get surgery. Get out. 
out. It's the world we live in. Slice and dice your problems away. Then you can look like other people. Have the gastro band inserted today and watch your weight and problems melt away. Finally, you can be happy like normal people. It's time to put down the knife and fork and go under the knife and scalpel. Give up and get thin. Gastro band surgery. Remember, surgery solves everything. Stop being a passenger in life. Stop waiting in traffic like everyone else. Take your ego to the next level and travel across town at hundreds of miles an hour. The San Andreas Flight School. Become a licensed pilot in as little as three hours. Take out your friends and family in spectacular fashion by getting certified. Don't believe what you hear? Flying is easy. It's mostly autopilot anyway. Click a few buttons, set the destination, and hang in back with the ladies. Imagine how hot she'll get when you tell her you can leave for a tropical paradise at a moment's notice on a plane. Always wanted to get into the exciting international courier business? You need to fly. Tired of dealing with the horrible airlines and their graying pilots? Get your pilot's license. A turbulence-free future is yours. The San Andreas Flight School. In the brilliance of Monday morning, Twitchell headed for his computer. Renee had already replied to his refusal to escape her little kidnapping game. Or would it be there would be no way I could escape? She had written to the Dexter Morgan profile. Hmm. Intrigued by her cheeky response, he wrote her back another message. Throughout the day, they would exchange five more messages, adding up to two dozen by week's end. He revealed his identity. They flirted. It escalated into sexual vulgarity. She knew he had a wife, but he assured Renee that he was living in an open marriage, as most lying sacks of shit do. They became instant distractions in each other's lives. Drawn together as strangers by their shared Dexter fanboy fucking fetish, Twitchell and Renee discovered they had other interests in common, like murdering homeless people and doing cocaine. They both described themselves as geeks and Halloween fanatics, having social circles of costume makers as friends. But these were superficial connections. The bond would soon go much deeper into his ass. <laughs> I'm such a child. At first, he treated Renee as a sounding board, feeding into her Hollywood dreams. He promised a creative partnership in a potential movie project, bragging about his company and coming fortune. Renee was a dog trainer. She was thrilled to have stumbled upon a filmmaker offering a slice of success. Where do I sign up and what can I do to help? Jesus Christ, not everybody you meet on Facebook is a producer, or at least a good one. Photos were swapped, private details undressed, and a long, rambling message on failed relationships exchanged. It wasn't long until their communication turned confessional. They both admitted to having dark fantasies through the years. Twitchell offered the cover of fiction to broach this topic, telling her they could continue brainstorming film concepts and it would be the little playtime, and if it led anywhere, she would of course be paid handsomely for her contribution. Renee dove in. I carry my own dark demons every day, she confessed. Oh, God, there are days when all I want to see is broken necks and blood, but unfortunately it never happens. Well, maybe if you grew a dick, it would. Then you could realize how quickly you don't like it. Twitchell was reassuring, as if he was eager to hear more details. There's nothing you could do or possibly reveal to me that would make me cease communicating with you, he wrote back before making his own confession. We all have a dark side, some darker than others, and you're not... And you're not the only one to relate to Dexter. It's a fictional fucking character, you nerd. It sometimes scares me how much I relate. He's fake. He doesn't exist. 
Renee was an unexpected jolt of energy just as Twitchell was beginning his new journey. She joined his long list of Enterprise. Between writing her each day, he was also resuming contact with Tracy Higgins, his uh, much-loved ex-girlfriend. He was flirting with her again, picking up where the two had left off with their one kiss the previous summer. They made plans to meet up, which Twitchell organized through his Dexter Morgan profile because he knew Jess was still monitoring his emails and personal Facebook. His eye was also drawn elsewhere, back to plentyoffish.com. He flicked on the software that blocked tracking of the internet actively as he browsed profiles of women in other cities. He sometimes looked for hours, scanning photo after photo, women seeking men. It was a profile for a young blonde that captured his attention, and he, th he thought that she was beautiful, able to instill a lustful craving in most men. He saved three of her available photos. One showed her posing in sunglasses behind the wheel of a convertible, giving a tiny smile. Uh, Twitchell quickly created a new dating profile on the same site, using a new email address to open it. He then defined the particulars of the account holder, a woman, blonde, seeking a man in Edmonton. He posted the three treasured photos he just saved to this new account. He called it Spiderwebs and gave the new woman the name Sheena. It was the name of his old roommate's girlfriend. He sat back and waited for men to respond. He couldn't wait to write about it. He had learned long ago that there was no better release than writing. He turned to his computer again, fingers above the keyboard, and typed in high spirits. This is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. God, I fucking hate this guy so much. It was only the beginning. Over the coming days, the words would flow from his mind onto the computer screen in bursts of creative energy. At first, I considered married men looking to cheat on their wives. In one way, I'd be taking out the trash, doling out justice to those on some level, and they would deserve what they got. But the logic of the situation denies this possibility. After all, people who are expected home at a certain hour, tend to get reported as missing. And there's other factors that could lead to an investigation I didn't want. No, I had to choose people whose entire life I could infiltrate and eliminate evidence of my existence from all levels. He just needed a title. Twitchell remembered a quote attributed to Mark Twain, uh, the horror novelist, horror novelist Stephen King had used in his novel Salem's Lot. A novel was a confession to everything by a man who had never done anything. Wait, a novel was a confession to everything by a man who had never done anything. Twitchell loved the quote nearly as much as he loved how Stephen King and Serial Killer began with the same letters. Ah. He had found the perfect phrase. Twitchell called his new masterpiece, S.K. Confessions. You fucking loser. Mike Young twirled the dial on the padlock on the back of the garage, clicked open and swung, and he swung through the door. Inside, the garage was fairly clean. A few pop bottles, that's uh, what the rest of the country would call soda, in case you're wondering. And discarded coffee cups were littered around, what the country of America would call soda. There's a few states that don't, they call it that, that word, I'm not using it. And Canada does as well, I believe. The only signs of the weekend film shoot were soda bottles and discarded coffee cups. Of course, he could not know how crucial this observation would soon prove to be for the police. At the time, he was solely focused on using the space as a workshop. Jay and Scott were coming over later, and together they would build a tank for a pet snake. I think that means an aquarium in Canadian as well. Or a terrarium, whatever the fuck. Twitchell and Jess continued to fight, and their distance growing ever wider between them. But a conversation one day pushed them even further apart. Jess was still worried that his editor, Phil Porter, was a lie, and her husband was cheating on her. And then he shocked her with 
shocked her further with startling admission that came with no warning. I am not sure I can feel empathy like other people, he said. Jess stopped what she was doing, shaken by what her husband had just revealed. Jess tried to engage him in a long conversation about empathy, and he was acting like it was a foreign concept to him. And she had to define what it meant. She thought back to an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show when a woman had revealed how she had forgotten her baby in a car, only to have the child die from the heat. As a new mother, Jess felt a great deal of empathy for the woman's tragedy. That's the hard kind of situation, she said, where I felt like, oh my god, what if it happened to me? Yeah, that's sad that happened, but it doesn't have anything to do with me, he said. Jess looked at her husband in confusion. She was amazed that something so serious was only bubbling to the surface at this stage of their relationship. Gone was his usual charm, replaced with a cold distance she didn't understand. They had a daughter nearing eight months of age, and just now she was being told that her husband felt nothing for anybody. That's not normal, she said in sadness. If I couldn't feel empathy, she knew she couldn't stay in this marriage. Uh, you need help, she said. He agreed it would be for the best. A marriage counselor was called, and another to address his personal issues. Not long after the conversation, he told Jess he had confirmed a schedule with the therapist and he'd be seeing the psych a, psych a psychiatrist every Friday evening. In fact, he had wasted no time about it. He already had an appointment lined up for the upcoming Friday. A session was scheduled for October 3rd, 2008. He'd drive there straight after work at a job he didn't have. Okay, guys, I got to go to work, so that's going to be the end of this episode. I think I should be able to nail this one down in three parts. So I hope next episode will be the last hour that I spend on this fucking loser. It might not be, but hopefully. Like I said, I did a shitload of research in this episode and the ones before it. So I hope you guys can feel my hatred for this guy because it is real. It's goddamn real. I can't stand him. All right. But I'll spare you another round of previews. Let's get straight to the stats. If you'd be so kind. First, first topic of uh, stats we're going to talk about is countries and territories. United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, Germany, New Zealand, Pakistan, Denmark, Sudan, and Norway. The top 10 list. Top 10 cities, Columbus, Ohio, Hogue, Ohio, Atlanta, Georgia, Centennial, Colorado, Chicago, Illinois, Houston, Texas, Boston, Massachusetts, Dallas, Texas, Indianapolis, Indiana, and Los Angeles, California. Thank you guys very much for your continued support. It is greatly appreciated. I genuinely appreciate you guys tuning in and checking out the show. If you could please spread the word of this show, it would be much appreciated. Um, eventually, I want to have enough listeners. I think I'm probably pretty fucking close, but... I want to have enough listeners I can start pitching it to whoever the pitch masters. I don't know who I would pitch it to, but fucking whoever listens to podcast and hands out, you know, channel deals or whatever the fuck that, however that works. I'm, I'm kind of a blissfully ignorant with that sort of thing. But if you would like to get a hold of me in the meantime, you can do so by going to Instagram.com slash Duke. Landis17. That's Instagram.com slash Duke, D-U-K-E-L-A-N-D-I-S-1-7. If you can't remember that, go to AnthologyOfHorror.com, and there should be a link to both my Patreon and my Instagram. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so. I will get back to you at some point. I promise it might take me a year, but I will get back to you. It's not that uh, I don't want to talk to you. I just get a fair amount of messages and don't have a lot of time. But eventually... I will get to your message, and I will respond. That's, that's a promise. I guarantee that. At some point. Uh, I believe I also have 
managed to make another i told you guys i got deplatformed on google uh whatever their fucking professional website was i got branded a fucking candy man by some asshole and they took down my professional oh, g suite so i lost g suite privileges but i don't think it exists anymore anyway so if you'd like to email me you can do so at springheeledjack 17 at gmail.com that is springheeledjack 17 at gmail.com I look forward to hearing from you guys. Uh, thank you for tuning in once again. Until next time, you scary motherfuckers, stay spooky.